Good morning. That is beautiful stuff. Turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. And we will get going this morning as we look at popularity, persecution, and pertinacious. I've been practicing how to say that word. (laughs) You know, as I read this passage this week and studied this passage over and over and over, I got the feel, the feeling I sort of got was an authority contest between the apostles, obviously, and the religious leaders there in Jerusalem. And the, that made me think of a TV series named The Dukes of Hazard. Some of you are not old enough to remember that, but many of you are. And I was glued to that TV back in the day when The Dukes of Hazard came on each week. One of the characters was by the name of Boss Hogg. There he is. Everybody knows Boss Hogg. And in our story this morning, it's the high priest. He is supposed to be their leader, and he represents in some ways the law, the Jewish law. And then we have the Duke boys. And for our sake, they're going to represent the apostles, not two of them, but 12 of them, because the, the apostles are sort of the country folk Uh, without proper education and sophistication, and they're always doing things. Boss Hog gets them, but they always slip away, right? And I think we'll see that in our text this morning. And in this drama, if you would, in this narrative, there are other characters. There's obviously the apostles, all of them this time, the people of Jerusalem, and really from the surrounding suburbs that are flocking to Jerusalem, the religious leaders, and a mentor, of the Apostle Paul when he was named Saul before his conversion, named Gamaliel. And so this clash of authority, we know, we know the the life of Jesus started with Jesus, right? It continues, we saw back in Acts 4, the first persecution in the church, and it continues today with different twists. And I think at play here, if you would, is this. Jesus gave his men right before he ascended to heaven, the great commission. Go and preach the gospel. It's the same one he has given us, his people. And the religious leaders are saying, no way. You must obey us, shut the preaching down. And there is the problem. So in this ongoing drama, I'd like to sort of approach it this morning with three scenes as if in some ways we're watching a movie called The Dukes of Jerusalem. How do you like that? (laughs) Scene one is the popularity of their apostles on Solomon's porch or portico. Scene two is the persecution at the trial. And scene three is the pertinaciousness of the apostles. You know what that word means? Stubborn as a hard-headed rock, like a lot of us in here. So we'll get to see a little bit of the apostle's stubbornness. Here's what I want you to do. We have a long text. I want you to stand with me this morning because it's easier to pay attention when we're standing. Open your Bibles or phones to Acts 5, and I will read together all the way 12 through 42. Ready? Pay attention to the whole narrative. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. 
And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that Peter may, Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Verse 17, but the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple which is like the police. And the chief priests heard these words. They were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what would this come to? And someone came and told them, look, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned themselves by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in the name, in this name. And here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us, this man being Jesus. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him, though, at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you're about to do to these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody and a number of men, about 400 joined him. He was killed and all, the, all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this, if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice 
And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then the apostles left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. You may be seated. The first place we start is the popularity of the apostles on Solomon's porch or portico. What I want to do is sort of zoom in on the large crowd gather on Solomon's porch. It was an open area. It was large. It was long, had a a covering over it, but it was a large open area on the east side of the temple that really was primarily the only place big enough in Jerusalem for a large crowd together. And this crowd, the text tells us, is made up certainly mostly of Christ's followers. The church is roughly around 15,000 folks at this time in its history. And they're meeting, as the text says, to hear the teachings, probably morning prayers and teachings, certainly of the apostles. It tells us many signs and wonders were happening that God was doing through their apostles. But as the camera angle sort of begins to widen, we see another crowd. Those who are not Christians, we, we pick up on that in verse 13, where it says none dared to join the Christians, but they did hold them, meaning they held the Christians in high esteem. Uh, this crowd was typical of the non-Christian crowds that often followed Jesus in that they wanted the gifts that Jesus offered his healing without wanting Jesus himself. They wanted the gift giver. They did not want the gift giver, just his gifts to heal them. But the context is, we go back to Acts 5, where Rob talked last week about Ananias and Sapphira. Sapphira, they, because of Ananias and Sapphira, there was a legitimate fear from the folks on the outside, meaning they knew that the church This church, the early church, did not play around with sin. There was an admiration, if you would, of their holiness. There was an admiration and fondness for how they cared for one another. This crowd had been seeing that. F.F. Bruce put it this way. He said, the fear from Ananias and Sapphira produced this, that these people were scared off. They were scared off all except those who truly wanted Jesus. Verse 14 tells us at the same time, there was multitudes coming to Christ. And in this wild scene, verse 16 says, they were all healed. They were all being healed. But verse 17 tells us there was another group that was not happy about what was going on. That's old boss hog and his posse, right? of religious leaders, and if I think if our cameras could sort of catch a glimpse of Boss Hogg and his posse's facial expressions, the text tells us what it would look like. It would be a facial expression of both rage and jealousy. The text tells us that the high priest rose up 
This, is, this word means a raging intensity. Now, why would he rage after hearing they were preaching about Jesus? Here's what I know. As a recovering rageaholic, he was afraid. He was afraid. The text tells us he was jealous. So why was he afraid, therefore jealous, therefore raging? It is because uh, with all this is going on, it ain't about them anymore. The apostles are stealing some of their shine. They're losing, these religious leaders, losing their power and authority as the big dogs of Jerusalem. Therefore, they are jealous. Now look, this isn't new for this crowd. And we can read through the gospels, particularly Mark 15 tells us this. It says it was out of jealousy that this same group of men, not long before this, delivered Jesus up to be crucified. They had already arrested Peter and John. We know that from Acts 4. And now they arrest not just Peter and John, but they arrest all the apostles for the preaching of the gospel. And they put them in the Rutherford County Jail. How about that? Now, what's some application to this first part? I think it comes from 2 Corinthians 2 where Paul really talks about, if you would, the philosophy of ministry of the early church. And here's how it sort of goes, if you read that passage later. To one group, the church is an aroma of death that brings death. And to another group, the church has an aroma of life that leads to life. And what these apostles are saying, or what the early church is saying, is we never adjust the smell of the aroma. We just preach the truth. To some, it has a smell of death. To some, it has a smell of life. And we allow God to be God. Often, churches today can try to spray perfume on the part of the message of the gospel that is an aroma of death for sinners. Matter of fact, just this week, matter of fact, just yesterday, I heard a pastor from the pulpit say these words, that God lied to Adam and Eve in the garden. Therefore, Eve's choice to eat the fruit was good And because it was good, it is now connected to her choice to choose to have an abortion from a pulpit. We don't make it more tolerant. We tell the truth and we let God be God. Here's how John Stott put it. He said, the paradoxical situation has occurred throughout church history where the presence of the living God is alarming to some and appealing to others. The bottom line in scene one is this. The masses from Jerusalem and from a wide circle of the uh, Jewish suburbs are flocking to Solomon's porch. The gospel is spreading like wildfire. People are being healed and these miracles are authenticating both the message and the messenger in this unique period of the early church While at the same time, the numbers, the attendance, the giving is going down at the Jewish temple. Panic is happening. 
And now our text indicates it's when the fun really begins. We move on to scene two. Scene one, Solomon's porch, sort of the popularity of the apostles. Scene two is the trial in verses 17 through 40. The popularity of the apostles in their ministry we see produces rage and jealousy, which then creates persecution. Again, it's been happening since Jesus. We saw it again the first time in the church, Acts 4, and we see it here. They put the apostles in jail with the intention of putting them on trial the next day. But old boss Hogg and his fellas got a surprise, didn't they? And I love, and honestly, I laughed out loud, just how casually Luke describes this, how he describes the great escape. And he does so by saying it was an angelic bell bondsman who came to the rescue. It's almost as if Luke believes what the great missionary George Whitfield said, that we are immortal until our work for Christ is done on earth. As the angel brings them out of prison, notice verse 20, that it was not so they could be delivered for their personal safety. Okay, now you're out, go hide, don't take care of yourself. No, but it was for a riskier obedience. It was in some ways, the angel's message was a retelling, if you would, of the great commission that came straight from the lips of the Lord Jesus himself. He said, they said, he said, the angel said, go and stand in the temple right where you were arrested yesterday and preach and teach this life that Jesus is the only way to life. In some ways, Luke contrasts that for us. He tells us clearly that the high priest, Boss Hogg, stood in rage. And now he tells the apostles, you go and stand in defiance. It is better to obey God than men. And it's not to preach kumbaya. It's not to preach, let's all get along. It's to preach that Jesus is the life. Verse 21 continues the narrative. It's daybreak. The apostles are now entering the temple with a holy boldness after being in jail all night. And my guess is probably didn't sleep well. I'm not thinking the beds are very good in a Jerusalem public jail. And what do they do? They begin to teach. And, and their teaching, this is what was phenomenal this week, is literally an answer to their prayer that they prayed in Acts 4, 29 and 30. It went like this. And now, Lord, look upon their, their threats and grant to us, your servants, to continue to speak your word with all boldness. I just want to ask, do you and I pray like this? Oh, Lord, give me boldness. 
I beg of you, Lord Jesus, give me opportunities to speak about those to those who do not know you. Do we ever pray that? Here's what I want you to know. God will answer that prayer 100% of the time, all the time, because he answers every prayer that is according to his will. And we know sharing Christ with others is according to the will. If you pray it, he will give you opportunities. It is a phenomenal prayer. And the illustrations that I could tell, but I don't have time, would be overwhelming this morning when I remember to do that. The movie now switches to the early morning surprise for the religious leaders when they arrived at the office for work. They're all uh, uh, dressed up in their fancy robes and their big old hats. And the first item on the agenda is these pesky apostles. So they send the temple police, go get them out of jail, bring them back to the court. The court that they were just in the day before, but oops, the defendants had disappeared. Poof, they gone. I love verse 23, I think it's hilarious. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. <laughs> I just read it over and over. All locks in place, guards not asleep, but they are gone. Verse 24, the temple police and boss hogs men are greatly confused, it tells us. And then the news comes to them. We found them not sneaking out of town. They're not hiding in the upper room. I hate to tell you, boss hog, but they right where they were yesterday when we arrested them the first time, doing the exact same thing you told them not to do. Yikes. Boss Hogs deputies, I imagine they got their radios on. <coughs> breaker, breaker one nine, where are they? Oh, I see them over there. Uh, let's go get them. Hey, you better be careful with them, boys. <coughs> if you grab them too hard, if you rough them up, this crowd will turn on us and we'll die right here. Be nice to them. So the guard goes over. Uh, Mr. Peter, I, I'm one of the temple police, as you can see. My name's Mr. Smith. Could you come with me, please? Just, just you and your guys, just come with us, and we don't want to make a scene. Sure. And we are told the disciples, the apostles, give no resistance. Calvin put it this way. The temple police did not fear God, but they certainly did fear men. <laughs> Folks, God is sovereign. It's a great reminder to us. God is sovereign over all of our lives. He's even sovereign over jail cells. And this frees you and I up to be risk takers for the kingdom of God. He will take care of us until our work is done. Verse 28, the high priest began to badger the apostles because they, they did not obey him. Why are you charging us with this murder of the Messiah? And Peter says, because you murdered him. <laughs> Peter tells him, we march to the beat of another drummer. We march to the beat of another authority. Our authority is the Lord Jesus Christ. You killed Jesus, but God instead exalted him as Savior. And then I think something wild happens here. Peter offers the mercy of God in Christ to those who are trying to kill him. 
He says, this is a message that will give forgiveness to the sins of Israel, to your sins. The response from the religious leaders, instead of humbly embracing the mercy of God and trusting in Christ, their response instead was volatile. They wanted blood and they wanted it now. One writer said it was no longer the apostles who were on trial, but the Jewish court was on trial, that God through his apostles had passed judgment on the very court, the very group of men who had initially condemned the Lord Jesus to die. Gamaliel, Paul's mentor back in the day before he came to Christ, he was a guy in history who, who really is semi-well-known in that he, in Jewish circles, he was a highly respected Jewish Pharisee. He was a mentor to Saul, as I said, before he came to Christ. He stepped in in some ways as cool as the other side of the pillow. Obviously, he has the apostles removed. He has the attention of the court. They respect him. And he didn't make an appeal, if you would, through scripture, but he did make an appeal through logic and reason, and really history. Here's what was his point. Movements founded by men die when they die. But those founded by God live on even beyond the death of their leader. This reality is, even though the high priest and his posse did take Gamaliel's advice in not killing the apostles, their evil intentions are well seen when the text tells us in verse 40, they beat them. And this beating is not just a few licks on the hand. It is the 39 lashes, most say, that the Lord Jesus got that we know left his back where you could open it and see his internal organs. They commanded never to speak of Jesus again. So we have scene one, the popularity on Solomon's porch. Scene two, the persecution at the trial. And then scene three quickly is the pernicious, pertinaciousness of the teaching and preaching. This stubbornness, this godly, holy, stubborn apostles. Don't you love it? I love it when stubborn, which is a negative term, becomes a positive term. Because I want to be stubborn and I want you to be stubborn about the right things and not stubborn and humble and teachable about the wrong things. You get what I'm saying about the right things. So teaching and preaching here. Verse 41, imagine the scene here. Put yourself in the scenario of blood-soaked clothes. They walk with blood-soaked clothes as pain riveted through their bodies with wounds that would take months to heal and scars that would be on their body for the rest of their days. And it says, they rejoiced. <laughs> the word beaten there is skinned. <clears throat> People were known to die from these 39 lashes. The only thing that I could speak of that would produce that was the genuine internalization at a deep level of Christ's great love and mercy for them. 
They knew it. And the vast majority of mining your problems is we say it, but we don't really know it. And when we know it, we rejoice. We can rejoice in the hardest of things. Our joy can't be robbed for us when we know Christ's love for us in that way. And I want you to know here, they're not rejoicing that they were in pain or beaten, but they're they're rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer for the shame of the name of Christ. It was a privilege to be linked to Jesus. It ought to challenge, I think, each of us this morning because we often find that for us, just the threat, not even the reality, just the threat of social rejection is really enough to make us cower and zip our lips about the Lord Jesus. Can we just affirm how fragile we can be? Spurgeon puts it this way. His exhortation is beautiful. He says, now I charge every Christian here to be speaking boldly in the Christ's name, according as he has opportunity, especially to take care of this tendency of our flesh to be afraid. So what will it take for you and I to speak boldly about the Lord Jesus? Even if it offends others, even if it's, you suffer, even if you are afraid. I think Paul tells us clearly in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. That word compel is to be seized by. Does the gospel, has it seized your mind and heart? It means controlled by. Has the gospel for you as a believer, is it controlling your mind and heart? to internalize the great unconditional love of God in Christ for you in spite of you. And when that happens, let me just tell you, evangelism is not to be a have-to chore. It is not an ought-to, but if we're compelled by the love of Christ for us, it becomes, I can't help but to do so. That's the change that we're looking for. And not we're necessary, it's the change God is looking for in his people. So we have scene one, scene two, and scene three. We've gone through this drama, if you would, this narrative, this movie of what's happening. For us, since our emphasis is outward with the mission, there it is, connecting outward with the mission by showing and sharing the good news about Jesus with people across the street and around the world, I want to give us three takeaways. We want to continue to equip ourselves and you in evangelism. How does it happen? What's the best attitudes to have? What's the truth? So here are three. There are many here in this text, but here's three I think we want to take away. First is to take sin seriously. Take sin seriously. The word is sin. If we go back to Acts 5, 1 through 11, the story of Ananias and Sapphira, we saw that God made sure the church took sin seriously concerning Ananias and Sapphira. Certainly rebellious, deceptive sin came in the church and God cut it out like a surgeon cuts out cancer. Now, the reality is God may not slay you and I, 
typically, although I know stories where I believe that took place. But Hebrews tells us that he does discipline those in whom he loves. Plus, it is to be the body of Christ, each other, that lovingly correct each other, as the scripture says, so we can be like iron sharpening iron with one another. Not for the purpose of more sin, but for the purpose of less. We are to take our own sin seriously. And then we are to look for the help from our brothers and sisters to help us take our sin seriously. Here's how Jesus put it in Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained a what? A brother. Really, what's at stake is the communication of the gospel to the world because godliness is deeply connected to evangelism. Here's how I would put it. I think I can promise you this. The less a person takes sin seriously, the less they will speak of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know it is true for me, and I think it's true for you. That pastor who said that God was a liar, how many people do you think they're talking to about the Lord Jesus and the necessity for him? Our text in verse 13 says, none of them dared to join them. None of the non-Christians, there was a group. Now there were groups of people coming to Christ, but there was a group who did not dare to join the apostles or the Christ followers because you don't join something where you could drop dead unless you want a true conversion, right? It's scary. So the early church took sin seriously. Now, what does that look like for us as a church? I want to be clear on this. A church that takes sin seriously creates a culture where the gospel is good news for who? Who? Sinners. Wrong answer. Not nice people. Not good people. Not people that need a little help and a little cleaning up and a little getting the rough edges off. No, for deep rebellious sinners. That's when it becomes good news. It creates a culture where everyone is practicing healthy self-examination regularly so as to see their sin first. And then at the same time, they are walking around with a posture of humility and openness so that others can come to them and help them see their sin with gentleness knowing that you will need to be spoken to one day. It fully acknowledges and normalizes our consistent, daily, moment-by-moment struggle with sin without justifying, celebrating, or rationalizing it at all. To be blunt, it calls sin, sin. It is a culture that confesses our sin to God and others. And to the non-Christian, we say to them, I am a sinner. I have great need. I have changed a lot, but I have so much to go. And let me, let me tell you all about it. It is that conversation that draws the pagan to the Lord Jesus, the authentic 
authenticity of it, the vulnerability of it, the transparency of it, because typically the non-Christian, when he hears the name Christian, he thinks they're a bunch of goody two-shoes, and I know a bunch of them who talk about themselves, and I know they're not, I know they got sins. That is what drives them away typically, not our transparency. A church that takes sin seriously makes outsiders take a serious look without jumping in until they're all in. They smell an aroma of life or aroma of death and we let God be God. So one takeaway is personally and corporately, we take sin seriously. Secondly, we take his power seriously. It is clear from our text that the apostles and throughout the book of Acts and the entire New Testament believe that in the gospel was the power of God and they took it seriously. Get arrested, no problem. Get beaten, no problem. Told not to preach, no problem. What do they do? They get out and they share the gospel. They're not talking about what's happening in the news. They know it has power. Paul put it this way in Romans 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Folks, this is not a human message. It is from God. Matter of fact, outside of heaven, the power of the gospel is in its highest density form is found in the gospel. Nothing outside of Jesus is described the way the gospel is described. And the God, writer of the gospel primer puts it this way, the gospel is the ultimate entity in which God's power resides and does its greatest work. How much power do you think it would take to raise a dead man to life? Jesus and us has that kind of power. So we take that power seriously. It's in the message, it's not in us. Secondly, it's the God of the message. Take obedience seriously. Acts 4 through 29 and 30, that prayer that the apostles prayed that God would give them boldness to continue to speak God's word. Trust me on this. That is step one to you being obedient to share the Lord Jesus with others. Pray, <laughs> Lord Jesus, I need your power to speak your words. Second step is that you and I have been commanded to speak. It's not an option. It's not for just pastors and elders. It is commanded for every believer, not just those who are gifted with evangelism. We gotta take that seriously. We can't just hit eject and know God for 30 or 40 years and never talk to another person about the Lord Jesus. It's, 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 and I'm not trying to shame, but you understand what I'm saying. I'm just saying that there's nothing in the New Testament that gives that kind of perspective. Verse 42 says, it tells us every single day, whether in the temple or the house to house, they did not stop preaching that Christ is indeed the Jesus. Now before, just so you can take a deep breath, these men, the apostles, had to grow in obedience just like you and I do. It doesn't come easy. 
I just ask the question, are you growing in obedience to obey the Lord Jesus to take the gospel around the street and around the world? Jesus asked Peter in John 21, Peter, do you love me? Three times. Peter said, yeah, yes, Lord. Of course, you know I love you. His response to him, then do what I say. The passage always bothered me. But when I'm growing in obedience, that passage grabs me by the throat. If you love me, do what I say. We're not saved by obedience. We're saved by faith. But I guarantee you, a growing faith produces obedience every single time. So this morning, our so what is this? I just want you to ask the question, what is it that keeps you from telling others about the Lord Jesus? It may be one of these three takeaways from our text. It may be a host of other things. But if you don't become aware of that, you won't work through it. You won't grow through it. You won't change through it. And you'll just keep your lips zipped. And I don't think any of us want that. So let's figure out what that is. Take a minute to do just that.